Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. So if anyone wants to, we'll post this up on the um, on the Radio Misfits uh, Podcast Network if anyone wants to uh, listen to it. Bart, your mom might be the only one that'll uh, that'll listen to it. I know. <laughs> Just download it as many times as you can, Mrs. Hanson. <laughs> right. is that your number one fan here? Oh, look at that. There's not right. a lot of the we're, – we're making new kid shirts right now as we speak. So uh, actually having the Benjamin crew dye them in, in their quarantine in Las Vegas. So I'll have uh, new kid shirts coming soon. Hey, and Sam, just tell people about the shirts because it's kind of cool who makes the shirts. Oh, like the actual manufacturing of the shirts? Just uh, how, well, that and how you met, how you met Ben. Uh, Oh, yeah. How did I meet Ben? I don't know. He's uh, he's friends with my dad and and Billy Kreitzman. Um, So the shirts themselves are made by... uh, a local company in Sebastopol, it's all organic cotton called Farm Fresh Clothing. Um, and then they're dyed. Uh, all the tie-dye is either done by by Alice, by my wife, or um, some of them, the, the harvest shirts especially, are dyed by this sort of crazy master tie-dye crew called uh, Ben Jammin, uh, Benjamin Strebel, St. Rebel. Uh, and his crew of tie-dyers um, in Vegas and in, in uh, Katati, but they're also, they do, like, design the light show for Dead & Company, and, you know, they have uh, retail outlets in, in Maui and in Vegas. It's a, it's a big collective of, uh, you know, some of, some of the great tie-dye artists of, uh, of, of the, the, the scene right now, I guess is what you'd call it. <laughs> Right. The tie-dye scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big, it's a big scene. So it's Sam, a big, it's a, it's a, depending on where you're looking from, yeah. <laughs> so Sam, tell us what's the vineyard look like here today. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's. I've seen some pictures of of some bloom. I mean, it, probably not at Rossi, but I saw someone from your company was showing some picture of some bloom somewhere. Uh, I'm wondering where there maybe. Some San yeah, we just started. San Gervese will be pretty close. Although I was just in the San Gervese today, I didn't see any. Okay. Um, you know, it could be we just started working with the folks at Sophie and James. Okay. Um, that maybe is where it is. You know, we're definitely not. Um, we're not at bloom out here yet. But, you know, the thing that's the most striking about the vineyard right now is um, is how dry it is. Yeah. The, you know, the fact that I can drive my Subaru out to where, um, you know, to where I am, uh, certainly I would have been sliding around and stuck in the mud at this time last, you know, last spring. Um, yeah. So, but, it, you know, and we're growth wise, um, you know, maybe a little bit behind where we've been in the last couple of years. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that there's the bloom places are probably a little you know, going to be the anomalies. We're, we're a week or two behind, um, you know, sort of what has been 
the average for the last five years or so, which have been, you know, all early springs. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of trucking along. Um, it's, it's Grenache right behind me. Um, and that's, you know, the, the Maristems are out, but that's the little, um, you know, the little baby grapes that will be the, the blossoms. Um, and, you know, it looks like, a you know, there's a fair amount of potential fruit out there. Um, but as far as like shoot length, you know, I'm looking out through this vineyard. It's up to one, seven or eight leaves. It's not, it's not way out. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, the, it's, I saw some Zinfandel this morning that was way further out than that, but this is, you know, um, growing slow. Uh, but I'm standing here, you know, in this wind right now, I could see it being sort of stunted because of that. Yeah. And, and just point out to everybody behind you there. I mean, that's, that's the Mayakamas range and, um, kind of yeah. Montecito and so it'd be, it'd be like Cundy, I think. Yeah. That, and the, like directly behind me. And then maybe Montecito is, is to the. Montecito is actually above Cundy. Montecito above Cundy. Okay. And then above that is like the Hamel Nuns Canyon. Right. Yep. And, and then above that is uh, the Charlie Smith Vineyard where we get, we do our, uh, our Chardonnay. Right. Um, and next to that is the, the Kistler Chardonnay. Right. Um, and then basically, so, you know, to just a little bit further north in that view is, is again, Sugarloaf. So, you know, I'm, I'm not very far from where we, I was standing for when I did this with at the steel plow vineyard. Um, but as far as, you know, the kind of place that I'm in, it's, it's pretty, pretty different out here. And then I think from the South, you get some, some views of Monterosa also, don't you? Yeah. Not from, not from where I am right now, but other parts of this property, you can see, you know, more towards Monterosa and like mountain terraces. Right. Cool. Hey, and Sam, can you just do a brief little history of the vineyard just so people know, you know, what's so cool about being out there? Yeah, so the, the Rossi Ranch um, was originally planted in 1910 um, by, so, I, you know, I call our wine the, the Rossi Homage and then the, the Blanc and then the Val Rossi Homage Rouge. Um, so Val Rossi's father planted in 1910, uh, the same year that Val was born. And there is still um, vines that survive from 1910, mostly Zinfandel, uh, a little bit of Alicante, and a little bit of Petit Syrah. Um, Val Rossi took over farming in the 30s when his when his dad passed away. Uh, so he took over, you know, took over farming here when he was a, a young man in his early 20s. Um, and basically, it was subsistence farming. Um, you know, it's how he he lived here. Um, you know, selling the grapes, selling the wine. They actually made wine on property uh, until the 60s, I believe. Um, and, um, you know, it's one of the, the classic old vineyards of Sonoma Valley. Um, the sort of family history of it for, for my family, um, when my dad had first started working in vineyards as, you know, sort of officially after college, um, Val hired him to run the harvest here in 1977 and uh, my mom who had just moved to Sonoma um, you know, straight out of a, of a hippie commune um, was looking for work and somebody said that this guy Phil Katuri was was picking grapes and to show up there and 
and get a job picking grapes for the day. So, um, you know, now the story has been added on. If you listen to Chris Cottrell's podcast over Bedrock Conversations, Skyla Olds kind of blows the story up because apparently my parents met up at Sky Vineyards before that. But uh, the first time they hung out anyway was here at the Rossi Ranch. Um, that afternoon, Val sent them to a, a dying block of Riesling, which uh, is down by the creek. So, you know, the, other, the opposite side of the property from where I am. Uh, and they spent the entire afternoon picking two boxes of grapes um, and, you know, hanging out, probably my dad, um, saying a bunch of corny jokes to her. And then, um, and then actually the real, the clincher to the whole thing was that in my, my mom turned her car on and her car radio was tuned to the right station. And my dad decided that she was cool enough to hang out with. <laughs> That's awesome. And if you, if you drive out of the vineyard and head back to Highway 12, there's that little Kenwood Depot. Um, right. That you can see some little landmarks about Val there. I know there's some like little signage there about it. Well, what it well, is. Go ahead, Sam. No, go ahead, Bart. I was just going to say that the, the, it's the train crossing sign that was donated by Val Rossi. And um, <laughs> we were just commenting that I wonder if they, he actually stole the sign. From the um, from the train track, or did the did the train actually go up to the ranch at that time? There, so I've seen pictures um, here in the collection. So it's now owned by the Odellinis, and they restored Val's house and have like preserved all of his records and photos and things like that. And I've seen a photo. Um, there was a little spur that yeah. came from the Kenwood Depot up to the Rossi Vineyard, the Rossi Winery, and. Uh, instead of, you know, they wouldn't bottle wine here. They would put barrels on the train and, and sent them, sent them east. And I actually think this was one of the places that, um, was making, they were making sacramental wine during prohibition here. Um, you know, being a good Italian Catholic family, uh, and, and sending communion wine, um, you know, all around the country out of, out of the Rossi ranch. Well, that was one way you could actually stay in business, right? Was to yeah, exactly. Was about the only way, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. make wine for religious purposes, and and there was uh, there was medical wine too. There was medical alcohol. You could get a, a prescription. Yeah. And and then there was black market wine. Right, and then there was the bootlegging. Right, the black the black chicken. Black chicken baby. Black chicken baby. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So Sam, what's the soil types out there? So this is uh, a, an incredibly diverse volcanic uh, area. So, you know, from where I'm standing, I can see, you know, the, the soil changes colors um, from sort of very light ashy to um, almost like Monterosso kind of red. Um, get behind my car a little bit to get out of the wind. Um, so, yeah, the, we have a block of Grenache that's, that we recently replanted on just like all dark red soil um so it's it's volcanic uh which is why i always find like i said at the beginning i always find uh chunks of obsidian out here so it's it's incredibly rocky um you know it's been farmed pretty intensively for 110 years um so you know there's there is good soil here that's been built up from from good farming but um it's it's rocky barren volcanic soil for sure yeah and you can kind of see that just being in that, that area it's surrounded in oak trees but the oak trees are not 
they're not like these valley oaks growing on the valley floor where they're real tall. I mean, they're kind of, they're, they're stunted growth. Yes. Scrub, I call it scrub oaks. Scrub oak, but, but they're 20 foot tall scrub oaks as right. opposed to what we think of on the valley floor where there's a lot of nutrition, you know, down on highway 12 corridor. So yeah, totally different, you know, just by looking at the, the soil around it. And then of course, to the directly west of there is Annadale State Park, which is, you know, one of the many places that they um, took cobblestones out of to build the streets of San Francisco. I didn't know that there's a, there's a quarry up there. Yeah, yeah, at the top of Annadale. Um, mm. Along with, you know, the Sebastiani family. Um, right. That, that story, which someday we'll get on, on podcast. So Bart, if you go if you go to San Francisco and hit some of those little alleyways with like those cool French and Spanish restaurants, those cobblestones are from yeah. those vineyards. Cool. Yeah. 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 State Park, and then from the um, the quarry that was up Gierke Road in in Sonoma, I'm um, kind of up like up there was a quarry up above, um, probably between uh, Los Chamazal and your dad's place. There was something up there. Also. Yeah, exactly. The, the Shock and Hill. Right. Shock. Um, Basically, like the right behind downtown Sonoma. Right. Now so it's say, now it's the Overlook Trail. Sam, yes. how does the soil in which you grow uh, differ from the terroir in uh, the Rhone Val in in Rhone where they grow Syrah? Yeah, you know. Um, so the similarities, Jeffrey, are are that it's a it's a very rocky place. I mean, I'm looking out here, and and it looks. It looks, you know, cobbles. It looks like the the river rock of of Chateau Neuf, um, right. but because it's it's volcanic and not limestone, you definitely get a, a very different um, acid uh, expression. Um, okay. You know, you, you don't get that. Um, you know, you get. Uh, how do I want to say this? So in vol in volcanic soil, it changes the pH. It, it keeps the pH um a little bit lower um but the thing that the similarities of it being sort of barren soils uh, it allows you from a farming standpoint to really cultivate it and and sort of feed the grapes in a way that um helps reduce vigor helps you know kind of uh, uh, intensify flavors keep crops low so the, you definitely get a, a different flavor expression from from yes you know the limestone soils the calcium you know, the calcium what is that word? I never say that word right. Um, yeah, that word. Uh, calcareous soils, um, then then volcanic soils. Um, I think you get brighter fruit in volcanic soils, um, but you don't get quite that same um, mineral expression that you get uh, you know, that of the in the acids uh, from calcareous soils. That's very interesting. Thank you. And Sam, what what's the breakdown on this wine? So on this one, on the on the 17 Homage Blanc, it's about 66% Roussan, uh, about 18% Grenache Blanc, and about 16% Marsan. So the side of the road that I'm on, I'm actually, behind me is Grenache, but in front of me, where you guys can't see, obviously, but what I see is the Roussan Blanc, um, you know, where, where you got your Roussan from, from Brian, and then across the way... Um, there's the old vine Zinfandel and then next to the old vine Zinfandel is where we have um, the Grenache Blanc, the Marsan, and there's actually a, a half a dozen rows of Roussan over there as well. 
Um, so we do co-ferment um, all of this vineyard. So we pick, we put both sides at the same time, basically waiting for the Roussan to get ripe. And then we pick everything all at once. Um, in 2019, we, we reserved some Roussan, but in 16 and 17, um, it all went in together. So again, that, you know, on the back of your bottle, it has a percentage. Um, that percentage is approximate based on size of the vineyard more than actually um, the volume that came in. And there is also the, the famous story, um, at least famous in our round, uh, about this block of Roussan, um, which was the budwood was collected uh, from two creeks, from, the, from Eric Bradley's family's vineyard just down the road. And somehow in the collection of the Roussan buds, um, some Chenin Blanc budwood got mixed in there. And Chenin Blanc definitely is bigger berries uh, and probably, you know, a little more water content than the Roussan. So in the 16, there was definitely a fair amount of Chenin Blanc. In the 17 and 18, um, there's probably just a, a little bit. We've cut over most of it, but there's still some some Shannon out there. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it's the mystery, but you know, it's now kind of the signature of this of this wine. And uh, Sam, tell me if you think this is a good idea or not. I'm thinking it would be fun to cut to uh, to Pablo Blanco and maybe get a description of each wine. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, let's 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 see what he says. It is it is 420 though, so it, you know well, uh, he's he's more he's he's more punctual than I am on these things. <laughs> hey, so I have to I have to say one thing. Are you guys drinking wine today, right now? Cheers. I mean, cheers. You all are because of Jasmine over there. <laughs> Give a shout out to Jasmine. I am Jasmine here. How are you? And a shout out to everybody who bought two more bottles because Jasmine told them to. <laughs> and in the course of all of this, I had a mishap. And oh. I my little toe. But I'm getting better. But I'm getting better. <laughs> And and Paul, we got a reverb on your sound. If 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 you want to give a description, will you turn your sound down and then give us a little brief description of the uh, homage blanc, if you don't mind? The homage blanc. Is that what we're drinking? I don't know. I'm smoking pot. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sounds like it. Then. <laughs> now the this is this is great blanc. radio. <laughs> What is going on with on you? Brand. I, always I on tell. brand. <laughs> Sam, right. it is on brand. That's it is on thing. brand. It is on brand. Well, All right, we're, we're muting Paul. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good idea. Mute, mute Paul. Brian, why don't you give us a description as a, as a sommelier? This, I know this, is, um, this wine is right up your alley in general. To but what, totally. would, what would you talk about this wine? Well, I love – so – from Marsan and Roussan, you get nice oiliness and, and nice nuttiness. And then with Grenache Blanc, you know, bringing that, that acid, that kind of green apple kind of acid to the party. So this, this is hands down one of my favorite wines that comes out of California. I could pretty much wow. drink this wine every day. 
Okay. It is beautiful. It's, it's got weight, it's got body, it's got structure, but it's got that beautiful acidity, and you guys know how I feel about acidity. Yes. We're all big fans of acid around here. Yeah. And if, <laughs> and if, now, is there any um, Viognier or Pickpool growing out there? Uh, there is, n there is not any Viognier or Pickpool out here. Um, one of the things that we've talked about with my dad is, is cutting over some of the Marsan and putting in, uh, both, both Pickpool and a little more, a little more Grenache Blanc and possibly some, some Claret. Um, wow. you know, really, uh, you know, in a true Southern Rhone blend, you wouldn't have Viognier and you wouldn't have Marsan. Uh, right. Those are those are Northern Rhone grapes. So, um, you know, we're, we're the cool thing is that we get to you know sort of play with the blend out here a little bit. Um, and I'm looking over there. I'm trying to see. I I think I think that some of the cutting over did happen already. Um, you know, it'll be sort of a gradual process so that we don't really drop production numbers too much. Um, but it's definitely. <laughs> Definitely in the works, bringing in uh, maybe Pickpool, but definitely Claret and more Grenache Blanc. And Claret's one of those cool grapes that you see in some of the white Chateau Neufs that um, um, the Haas family down at Tablas Creek brought in and, right. uh, and is finally starting to, to make wine out of it, not just as a blender, but also as a 100%. Um, and it's, I think people are kind of just figuring out what to do with it here in California right now. Well, you know, one of our, our heroes, um, Julien Barreau at Domaine de la Baroche in Chateauneuf-du-Pape, um, who, you know, famously sort of bucked tradition and made pure the 100% old vine Grenache and, you know, then got 100-point scores and, and is one of the, you know, most, one of the sought-after wines of the world. Now he's doing, and I, Jasmine, correct me if I'm wrong, I know that you've tasted this, uh, he's doing a pure Blanc which is 100% Old Vine Claret from Chateauneuf. So there's definitely, you know, room to play with Claret and, 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 you know, let it take more of a role in some of these white blends in California. I'd like to see that happen. Yeah, that's one of my favorite white Chateauneufs is, is a 100% Claret Blanche, um, Domaine Saint Prefer. And they, mm. only, they only do it in Magnum every year because they don't make a lot of it. So they basically do it for, for real hardcore... Um, uh, white Chateauneuf lovers. There that's is you, uh, that's you, there's a there's a rumor of a couple of those magnums somewhere in my dad's cellar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right on. Maybe, maybe uh, we'll do another another dinner. Um, yeah, right, but, you know, seventeen, seventeen in general. This is um, you know this is again we've we've talked about it before. Seventeen was a crazy hot. Uh, summer, crazy hot Labor Day weekend, um, and then the temperature dropped hard in the early weeks of September, kind of leading up to, you know, the catastrophe of the of the fires in October. But what you know, what I taste in this wine is sort of that balance between that that really ripe fruit, especially uh, in in the Roussan, um, but that coolness that came, you know, behind that heat wave and, and over Labor Day that sort of locked in some of the acid and some of this freshness. Um, you know, I'm really happy with the way the 17 is, is evolving and developing. Um, you know, the 18 is great. You know, we're, we're 
kind of closing out the 17 soon and be rolling with the 18. We've sent it out to club members already. Um, but, and then 19 actually took a page out of, out of the Dane Sellers playbook and did some of the fermentation of the 19 in concrete egg, um, which is totally sort of like added another layer to this wine. So again, you know, this is 17 is the, is the second vintage of the homage Blanc for us. We did it in 16, we did it in 17, um, 18, and then 19. So that'd be the fourth time. And, and we continue to sort of adjust the, the blend a little bit, adjust the, the fermentation methods and styles, um, you know, kind of figuring out, uh, you know, really a, a true Southern Rhone white blend is, you know, a lot of it is uncharted territory here in, in California. So, or at least Northern California. Um, so we're still tweaking it and trying to make this the, the best expression of, of the concept and the best expression of the Rossi ranch that we, that we possibly can with it. Yeah, it's great, Sam. What I like the most is that you guys don't bury it in oak. That, uh, right. I mean, that that fruit is so beautiful it would be a crime if you just buried that thing in some new french oak so thank you <laughs> yeah you would it would it would lose a lot of uh the subtlety of those flavors and the, the interplay between the different varieties and stuff like that it would just kind of be you know it might be delicious for the the buttery uh chardonnay crowd but it definitely wouldn't be the an cougars. expression of this place the cougar juice yeah <laughs> The, the, I'd probably get sued if we called it buttery, though, right? Isn't that what's happening now? Right, right now, yeah. <laughs> you might get sued if you called it cougar juice. Yeah, probably. Sam, you only made two hundred and sixty-four cases of this last year. What's going on? That, which is a big number for us, um, John. This is, uh, you know, this is one of our, you know, larger production wines. The the Rossi Ranch in general you know, has the capacity for us to, to make, you know, a couple hundred cases of the stuff that we make from here. So this is definitely um, the, the most of anything that we make is that 250 odd cases. Yeah. All right. So Sam, while we're jumping into the Valeria, are you going to drive over to Dos Limones? No, I thought about that, but uh, nah, I'm going to hang out here. I'm going to try the Valeria. Okay. And, and uh, you know, and I'm, you, I'm standing in Grenache, so I think I'm okay for the Valeria. Okay. And did you bring any food this time? I did. I brought some, um, I brought some dry jack from Vela Cheese, and I brought some duck prosciutto from Ovello, uh, and I brought a little uh, mate and a San Pellegrino. So I have provisions. I yeah, can, you're I can stand here and, and drink wine and be okay. Okay, cool. All right. So we're moving on. Oh, I like, look at these. You got, we got signs now. We've got the Dane Cellars 2016 Valeria GSM blend, Grenache, Syrah, Moved, and all that bar takeover. But I think this is, uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, this is Phil Farm Fruit, right? No, this is actually not. This is not, okay. This is not. So, um, you know, I've, I wanted to work with some Rhone varieties uh, for quite some time. When I, when I was working for the Benzigers and making homemade wine, I was making, my homemade wine was Syrah at the time and uh, always looking for some Mouvedre, always looking for some Syrah, I mean some Grenache. None of it was, it, quite frankly, it wasn't planted. You know, we, we, I think we truly have Phil Katuri to thank for as much, as many Rhone varieties that there are in Sonoma Valley. Um, 
as much as we can thank Sandra for raising the, um, the, the, the awareness of it. Um, so I always wanted to uh, get some. I knew that there was Syrah, Grenache, and Mouvedre at the Rossi Ranch, but I could never get the grapes because there, some of it was being replanted or spoken for. Right. Uh, and um, I had heard about this little vineyard um, called Kimberly's Vineyard that was actually from where Sam's standing. If you look behind him, uh, there's Sonoma Creek. And then there's a small uh, ridge that runs north-south between Sonoma Creek and Highway 12 where the Bagani Ranch is. And, and if those of you have been here where the old Kenwood restaurant is. And this Kimberly's Vineyard is located at the top of that ridge up there. So um, like kind of by Casada? Right next to Casada. As a matter of fact, it's in between Casada mm. and Joe Benziger's house. And so oh, okay. the great thing was is that when I'd go up to check the vineyard, if Joe was there, I could go through the fence and go over and have a shot of tequila with him. Okay. And, and come Just back. one? That's difficult. Now, Bart, I'm, I'm remembering now this vineyard. I've actually been to this vineyard. Yeah, we walked up there, right? Okay, yeah, and you can see Joe Benziger's house when you get up to the top of the vineyard. There. Right. So, okay. and so there's down below, there's some Cabernet and some Zinfandel. Uh, the Cabernet is pretty old, but really diseased. And then there was a block of Chenin Blanc that had gotten pulled out 20 years ago down there. Um, but up on top, there was this one field, and it was planted to Syrah, Grenache, Mouvedre, and Viognier. And, and if you remember, Brian, the plan was always to, um, to take some of the Syrah and the Viognier and ferment them together. And but then, I think, uh, weren't the deer eating all the Viognier? turkeys the turkeys uh, yeah like two days before we were gonna pick it i went in to check it and 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 it was gone i mean there wasn't a lot <laughs> of vignette but it was gone yeah um, and the stems were still there but there were no berries whatsoever yeah. um so the vineyard is and and like so many vineyards of the era that were planted to syrah grenache mouvedre they were all planted to too much syrah and not enough right. grenache and not enough mouvedre and, and so this vineyard is that way also. Um, but this wine is 55% Grenache, 38% Syrah, and what's that add up to? 7% Mouvedre. And so what happened was I picked the Syrah and Mouvedre together, and the Grenache got picked later. Um, it, just, it just wasn't ready when, when the rest of it was. So we fermented the Syrah and the Mouvedre together. And then the Grenache got fed, uh, fermented separately. Um, and then what I did is I built my blend. I knew I wanted to, to use all the Grenache because I wanted to be a Grenache-based wine. And then I backed in the Syrah and the Mouvedre. So, so this, this is probably a little, like tasting the wine to me, if I had the chance, I would probably like to have had less Syrah in it. Um, just because I think the Syrah is pretty dominant in, in the wine when you're tasting it. Um, but it, it, it definitely, the, the Grenache stands on its own. The Grenache is what gives it the liveliness in the wine. Um, but there's definitely a dark, a darkness to the wine that comes from the, uh, Syrah. And then the Mouvedre is just there for some life. Um, I think it, it's not as much impactful, but the interesting thing is that I took the rest of the wine, which was the Syrah and Mouvedre blend, um, and that's still aging in barrels, and we're going to bottle that here uh, as soon as we can start bottling again. 
Um, and so wait, 2016 Syrah that's in barrel still? Yeah. It, you know what? Wow. It's, it needed the time, Sam. It yeah. needed the time. Um, and, and it's showing real good. It's still real fresh. Um, I have a few of them in some large formats. Um, mm -hmm. And so we'll, we'll get it bottled here. Um, so I'm excited about that wine also. But so this wine was then, um, it was a very, very long fermentation, um, especially the Syrah Mouvedre part. Um, it was uh, 35 plus days on skins. And then the Grenache was about a three and a half week fermentation. Um, once it was all um, uh, pressed, um, the, uh, I, I put them into barrels separately. So the Grenache was 100% in its own barrels. The Syrah Mouvedre blend was together. Um, left those to age about eight months and assembled it. Put it back into barrels for about another year. So if, if that's, is that John Myers? No. <laughs> hey, hey, Bart, where does the name Valeria come from? It sounds like a science fiction movie. <laughs> so, you know, when we decided to make a Rhone blend, um, and you need to distinguish the blend a little bit, at least Terry and I felt that way. And the first name that she kicked around was a financial term. Um, and and it's, it's interesting. <laughs> she thought it was this great term. And I was like, there's just no way I could tell the story about some derivative and buying at a certain point knowing that. I mean, Kevin Burns would totally have appreciated the name. But Wait, wh what was it? Uh, Contango. What? A contango. You guys can look it up. You guys can look it up. Okay. Um, and so I, I wasn't really for that name. It was it was too hard to pronounce. It was too hard to explain. And uh, Terry used to talk about her godmother, who her name was Valerie, and uh, they were very very close. And uh, Valerie was a. Uh, they lived down in Carmel Valley, and they had a backyard vineyard where they had some Syrah and Pinot planted, and they were home winemakers. And uh, Valerie died very young of breast cancer, and she used to spend a lot of time down in Mexico. And when she was down in Mexico, she was just known as Valeria. And so Terry's nickname for her was always Valeria. So we named the wine in her honor, and, uh, and that's, how, that's where it comes from. Okay, I looked up contango. It's Spanish. It means with tango. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I'll, I'll, um, I'll that's that Petaluma High School education coming in again. <laughs> I mean, hey, I, I went to Casa Grande, thank you. Yeah. Oh, okay, my bad. Yeah. Well, at least he was able to look it up. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, this is a really beautiful wine. Uh, I, I'm really happy with it. It's aging out real nice. Um, you know, the, the Grenache... Um, Phil would probably not have wanted to pick the Grenache yet because it was still quite tart. Um, uh, but I picked it because it was starting to look like it needed to be picked. Um, and, but I think in, in retrospect, when you look at it, because the acid was so high in the wine, it's really given the wine some life um, and, and it makes it stand up tall. Because again, with the 38% of Syrah, it would, have, it, it would have showed just as a Syrah had it been um, lower acid wine. Yeah, I think that, that it doesn't, to me, Bart, um, seem like an overwhelmingly Syrah wine. I'm getting some really nice sort of, uh, you know, strawberry characteristics, which I really, you know, think of as a, as a Grenache flavor, flavor component. So, um, yeah, I think it's, 
yeah. You know, I, I'm always in the back of my mind. You have, and you know this. You you have predetermined um, thoughts, right? Like I've always right. known that I would have liked to have had more Mubedra. And so I think sometimes that clouds my thinking of what the wine, how it actually um, reflects. Yeah, I mean, I don't get the like those savory, unctuous Mavedra notes, right. which I, I definitely love. Um, but you know, you, you get the grapes that you get. You know. Now the 2019 Mavedra that I got from the Rossi Ranch, and and again, the the whole point of this is I got this vineyard because it was just across the creek from the Rossi Ranch, it was available, and I was in the queue waiting for the Rossi Ranch. And, you know, so now I'm there, you know, pay for your grapes and let Phil know you want more next year. That's the most important thing. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the winning formula. <laughs> right. You want the grapes next year? You got it. Just pay for them for this year. Pay for them yeah, this no. year. <laughs> Bart, the wine's, the wine's tasting great. It's got really nice mouthfeel. It's got a really nice grape flavor to it and nice length on it. It's, I haven't tried this wine in a while, and it's actually in a really good place. Yeah, I agree. Did we um, did we do a blending session of this on an early episode of the podcast? Yeah, we did. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't think honestly, I don't think I've tasted it since then. Yeah. Um, nobody, nobody's ever given me a bottle yeah. before. I was going to say, Sam, you have to sign up for my wine club. <laughs> yeah, you know about that. Uh, <laughs> lost my email. <laughs> and Bart, you you sell most of this probably through the girl in the fig. They pour this by the glass. Yeah, you know the girl in the fig. Actually, no. Um, they they pour it on the list, and um, and they kill it on the list. I mean, they there's times where they'll order, and I wonder if they're selling it by the glass. Um, <laughs> that happens do, at the girl in the fig. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what? It's it's all about the staff. The staff gets behind the wine. Um, you know, and, and it's very well priced on the list. It, it sits in a very, very good place. Yeah, thank God. If it was Contango, you know, you'd probably be sitting on a bunch of it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hey, and Bart, what did you do as far as um, aging for this wine? And did you, someone, someone was asking if you were um, inoculating, if you were doing natural yeast. But you're mostly doing, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm 100% no additions, so no yeast additions, no malactic additions, no, I, I, I add sulfur, I add sulfur because I want the wine to taste good when you guys open it, especially when you're doing it in this forum, um, well, with everybody's looking at you. Well, explain what that means for people that don't know what you're talking about. Well, so, so we don't add, there are places you add um, enzymes to try to draw more out of the skins, um, uh, adding yeast. Uh, when you decide to add yeast for a fermentation, um, it's a cultured yeast, um, and they're usually designed to either rise or uh, bring out aromatics or give more uh, mouthfeel or different textures. Um, I've always been of the feeling that just work with the yeast that are available in the winery and the vineyard. Um, Malolactic fermentation is something that happens naturally on its own. Um, and in Burgundy, they don't inoculate for ML. They let it happen. Um, there's a feeling that the wine um, has a different um, texturally. It comes out better when it's a long malolactic fermentation as opposed to being um, uh, pushed through kind of quickly. Um, and, and really all you have to do, you're actually, by having a slower fermentation, I mean, a slower ML, 
um, what you're actually doing is you're putting off adding sulfur to the wine. So the other thing that ends up happening is I end up adding a lot less sulfur over the aging time in these wines. And that just lends to be, I think, to a more harmonious wine. And this is all done in neutral oak? This is all done 100% neutral oak. At this time, this wine was made in um, 60 gallon French oak barrels. Um, in the past couple of years, I've been converting to 500 liter barrels. So those are about 130 gallon barrels. Um, and slow, shortly here this year, I'll probably have more large format barrels than 60 gallon barrels. And how much of this did you make? We made 150 cases of this. Okay. Yeah. So, and the idea behind the large format barrels, especially with, you know, wines like that are, you, I, I wouldn't put 100% Syrah in a large format barrel, um, but for Grenache and, and Mouvedre, it tends to do very well because of the surface area. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it, Syrah wants to be kind of reductive naturally. And so in a smaller barrel, there's more oxygen um, exchange, so it keeps the wine fresher. But, it, but again, in a large format barrel, there's less oxygen exchange. So in a, um, uh, in a wine like Grenache, which is, you know, you almost want to treat it like a white wine. You almost want to treat it like Pinot. Um, less oxygen exchange keeps the wine fresher and brighter. All right. All right. Cool. All right. All right. And uh, just so you guys know, I'm here at the winery. Um, I'm making my wines. A few of you that are here have been here. Um, I'm making my wines down on 8th Street East in Sonoma. I share with um, Cindy Costco from Passaggio and uh, our friend Steve Law from McLaren, both who have been um, on the podcast before. And uh, so this is our, I think it's 6,000 square feet that we all share down here. And then Bart, I know you're, you're not getting this fruit anymore. You're starting to get some of the um, Rossi fruit. Yep. But then do you want to tell people about the other source that you had for your mixed blacks that you, uh, that you have in barrel? Yeah, so um, in 2019, the Idell family, Idell family vineyards, um, they have a vineyard called Michael Mara Chardonnay that's quite um, well received. Um, and they have a, a block that they call mixed blacks. So it's Zinfandel, Grenache, Mouvedre, Carignan, and Petite Syrah. Um, supposedly equal parts. Um, well, someone told me it's equal parts, and then someone else told me it's, it could be a Zinfandel. Um, I tend to think it's probably equal parts of those varieties. There are a couple Chardonnay vines in the block also. Um, it's located um, kind of at the southeast um, base of Sonoma Mountain. Um, not far from the, um, the Carneros Appalachian um, border. So it's definitely a cooler growing area. It's all grown on, you know, gro uh, rock. It's, it's along Carragher Creek. Um, and, and so I got the grapes uh, last year. Um, they haven't been offered to me this year. The, the Idell family, they make their own wine. Um, and I think that they just decided that they were going to take a year off from that particular wine. But I'm really excited about the wine. It's, it's, um, it's about as hipster of a wine as I've ever made. It's, it's really bright fruit. It's um, a real high acid, real lively wine. It's, it's going to be really interesting. Wait, so you picked it in July, and it's about 10% alcohol, <laughs> and you're going to slap a really <laughs> sweet label on it and call it natural wine? No. You know what? I'm still probably just going to put my, you know, my boring Dane Cellars label on it and, 
Um, it squeaks in at about 13 and a half alcohol. So wow. it's a legitimate wine, um, you know, but, <laughs> but there's no doubt that when we picked the grapes, um, that it was on the, the, the less ripe side of things. Right. Um, but, but to be honest, those varieties, you know, Zinfandel does well at a lower sugar because um, it, it retains a lot of acid. Um, the same thing with um, Carignan. Um, you know, you could argue that Petite Syrah and, and Grenache need to be, definitely need to be riper. Um, but in, in this, in the area, those were fairly ripe. You know, the vineyard was quite well exposed and stuff. So um, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting wine. It's been fun making it. It's, you know, it's a challenge when you really don't know what you're getting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know they're, they're pretty much known for Chardonnay. And I think Steve Mathiason was the, um, was the kind of their vineyard manager for a while. And yeah. they would, they sold a lot of fruit. Uh, you, you know, if you, if you're a wine drinker, you probably had some of that um, fruit over the past 10 years or something. Yeah, Brock does something. Steve Mathiason makes some wine from it. Um, uh, Mar de Chai uh, makes a, a Chardonnay from it. Um, you know, Steve Mathiason, when he talked about the vineyard, that basically it's grown on rocks and that the only organic material is what grasses and what cover crops they get to grow every year that they mow and then it breaks down into the soils. It's, it's really just kind of a pile of rocks. Right. Was that a, a intent when you were out did, sampling it? Or did you just pick it when you had to pick it or did... So the samples come in at a higher sugar than what it actually ended up crushing out to? Um, you know, truth be told, the owner of the vineyard was picking his Syrah block. And, um, and he wanted to uh, have, the, since the pickers were there, he wanted them both to pick. I probably would have waited a little bit longer. Um, but Richard's yeah. a hard person to say no to. Yeah, you know, he's a lawyer and, and yeah. you know... <laughs> <laughs> he just he has that like disapproving look he just kind of looks at you and you go all right i'll do whatever you say Richard. <laughs> and, and, and it was you know it, it it started off i said so are you going to send me a contract and he said no he goes let's just shake hands we're good on it right and i said yeah and then he sent me an email that was just an email confirming everything but it had a very distinctly lawyer feel to it um, yeah. <laughs> well, he's not just a regular lawyer. He's a he's a he's an attorney for rock bands. Right. In the well, he was Bill. He was Bill Graham's lawyer. Yeah. 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 So I can see he's it, he wants to make sure you know he's crossing his T's and dotting his eyes. Bart, he's this, also the guy who saved Bottle Rock. I I don't know that story, Sam. Yeah. Well, the the first round, the first year they did Bottle Rock, um, whoever the promoter was. Kind of left everybody high and dry. Didn't pay the CHP. Didn't pay yeah. Napa cops. Didn't like pay for a bunch of stuff. And they weren't gonna. And they weren't gonna get a new permit. And Richard and I don't know the. I think it's. I think it's the same promotion company that puts out like outside lands. Uh, right. Came in and took over and and saved Bottle Rock from you know extinction after its first year. Cool. Um, Bart, this wine yes. started to open. Fire fast Napa Valley, exactly, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> the food yeah, was, was better. The food was better. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to get a lot of chocolatey uh, notes now on the Valeria. The Mavedra and the mm. Syrah coming to life a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so are we going to move on? Yeah, let's move on. Go. 
Dun, dun, dun. We have the 2016 16600 Dos Limones Syrah. Brian, One, I'm myself just to say that this is the greatest bottle of wine ever made. Uh, <laughs> which, wait a minute, which one? The, the Dos Limones. Sam. Oh. <laughs> this, How did you this, get to the top of Reprie there, Bixby? I'm at the top of Reprie, but this is the top of the wine. <laughs> I won't, I won't tell Eric. <laughs> this is um, this is definitely my favorite red wine that 16600 makes, and it's it's because it's sort of a, a nod to Cote Roti. Um, yeah, I, I had a chance for these grapes once. Really? <laughs> oh no, that was the Zin from up there. That was the Zin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. We don't, the, the Syrah. So the the Dos Limones story. Um, I was I was there this morning, so I posted a couple of pictures in my on my Instagram story. Um, but the Dos Limones Vineyard is down Sonoma Mountain from where I am, kind of middle of the valley, about four or 500 feet elevation. Um, and it, this is the first place that uh, Phil farmed organically starting in the, the late, you know, 1979, 1980. Um, and it's gone over, gone through a few transformations, both in, in vineyard makeup and ownership since then, but we've actually leased the vineyard for 25 years or so. Um, the, there's only about an acre of Syrah. So the Syrah, you know, 2016 was a good year in the Syrah, the, the Syrah, um, you know, yields, we put out between like 60 and 140 cases a year of the Syrah, depending on what's out there. And I think we did about 140, maybe 135 in, in 2016. Uh, so there's not usually a lot of Syrah to go around. The, the most part of the vineyard is, is Zinfandel. Um, and then there's a little bit of San Gervese, and then there's actually a couple of blocks that have been fallow for a few years. Um, but yeah, this is the spot, you know, we've, we've been there for 40 years. Um, so it, it predates me. Um, it's all about, uh, bragging, you know, what's that? You're bragging that you're less I'm, than 40. I'm le I'm slightly less than 40. Uh, Phil was already farming here when I was born. Um, but it's, you know, the, the vine age on the Syrah is probably about 20 years at this point. I think they were planted in the, the early 2000s. Um, the Zin was replanted in the mid-90s. Um, and and to, to Brian's point on this, um, this is co-fermented with skins from the Viognier that we tasted uh, in the last one of these tastings from the Steel Plow Vineyard. So when we, when we harvest the Viognier, we save the skins uh, and, and freeze them. And then usually it's like two or three weeks later that we bring the Syrah in to frost the skins and throw the, the Viognier skins and throw it into the Syrah fermentation. Um, you know, in, in Cote Roti, one of the reasons that they let you put Viognier in the Syrah is it's so cold and so, you know, so far north in the Rhone Valley that you're not going to get great ripeness in the Syrah no matter what. Uh, so you need a little bit of sugar and a little bit of, of help, you know, with the fermentation from the Viognier. So in, in Northern California, we don't need that. Um, we don't need that piece uh, of, of help. We don't need extra sugar in our Syrah. Um, so by using just the skins, you get the flavors, you get, you get the, the textural elements that the Viognier brings, um, but, you know, helps keep it, uh, you know, a little bit more restrained. Um, this is, you know, 
certainly a fan favorite. It's probably my favorite of, of the red wines that we make also. Uh, it's certainly the one that I'm grabbing more often than not if I'm grabbing a bottle out of the cellar to take home or to take to a party or something. Well, and, and you know, the, the Dos Limones Vineyard is, is in this great spot because it's in Sonoma Valley, but being on the west side of the valley and on Sonoma Mountain, you know, I mean, it gets that morning exposure, but by the afternoon, um, it's, it becomes in the shadow of Sonoma Mountain. So, you know, and I've said this a million times, to me, this is a cool, warm spot. Um, yeah. No. So it lends itself really well to the, to the wine, don't you think? If if I was standing where you know standing facing the direction I am now in the in the certainly in the Syrah block, um, the sun wouldn't be in my eyes. Uh, it definitely you know an hour or two earlier than most parts of the valley um, that it it's in the shade and for a, a variety like Syrah that you know thrives in a, a variety of different climates. That variety twice in that sense is a terrible sentence. Um, you know, Syrah can be great in cool climates. There's obviously lots of warm climate Syrah, you know, Shiraz, Australian Syrah and stuff like that. Uh, but to have that balance, to have those, you know, those really warm, dry, you know, drying mornings where, you know, it's above the fog. It doesn't get, you know, it doesn't stay wet and, and damp in the morning, but cools off earlier in the afternoon, especially when you get towards the end of summer and, and into, you know, September, which is often one of our... Um, one of our warmest months around here to be in the shade when, you know, like stuff on the moon mountain district side of the Valley are getting roasted um, really helps sort of preserve some, some freshness, some, some acidity, which is something that California Syrah often is lacking. Yeah. Um, so totally. You know, as a well, what I, what I like to do, um, tell people that when they try this wine, it smells so pretty. Like it doesn't smell like a, a normal red wine because you've got that addition of the Viognier, which adds some of those aromatics into it. And right. I kind of think of it as, a, you know, Syrah being the, the, the biker dude. It's a guy who's, you know, dressed in leather with the tattoos, riding on his Harley. <laughs> and, and the Viognier is his girlfriend who's a ballerina dancer who's dressed in her little <laughs> pink tutu. And she's on the back of the bike with her little ballet slippers on. It's just like this, this cool meeting of two worlds that just makes you know the the sum of the 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 parts is greater than the than the individual uh, pieces. It's really fucking great wine. Brian, you, you're a master you, Brian. of description, buddy. Seriously. <laughs> now, what I've certainly found about you know um, the Dos Limones site again, this has always been my my favorite, and we only start. This is only the second vintage that we did the Viognier skin edition, um, but what the Viognier did. And this is sort of to Brian's point is the Viognier was the sort of finishing touch on this one, sort of the, the, the refining element, um, sort of polished some of those rougher, more rustic edges that Syrah can often have. Um, I also have found of all of the wines that we make, um, this is the one that has the sort of the, the most, the most cellar life, the most aging potential. Um, 2007s, if anybody has any of those left, I don't know if I have any left, but 2007 Dos Limones Syrah is, is spectacular. I did a virtual tasting a week or two ago, um, and they wanted to do all 2013s. Um, and so we did 2013 Dos Limones Syrah, and that just was like, I hadn't tasted it in a while and had this like, that classic 
blueberry, uh, you know, a little bit of the smoked meat kind of aromatics really kind of mellowed out a little bit. The, the tannins had resolved. Um, so this is something that, you know, um, you know, you could talk about Cab, maybe you can talk about Zinn or the Rhone, the Grenache blends. But I think if there was one thing from 16600 that you would want to bury in your cellar and, and pull out in 10 years or 20 years, um, it's the it's the wines from the Dostamona Syrah. I didn't even know you had any of that buried in that cellar, Sam. Uh, you know, the 07, I think I might have a little bit left. There's maybe some 06. Um, there's not a – again, this is – um, this is always the first wine that we sell out of every year. So I, I try to hide it from you guys, from, you know, you and Jasmine, Brian, because you guys always sell all that old stuff out of the cellar when I'm not around. Um, but or, yeah, or drink a, it. <laughs> or drink it. Yeah, we sold a lot of it and drank almost as much. Um, no, but I, I, I try and hold on to some of it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, with nothing – with a – with a Syrah more than anything else, it's tough to keep a good library because it really is, it's our most sought after um, wine for sure. And did you guys actually, I, I can't remember if we talked about the, the name Dos Limones, where that comes from. Oh, uh, I didn't talk about that. So, um, you know, a lot of Sonoma Valley was in different types of agriculture post-prohibition and then leading into uh, Jasmine, Jasmine selling the 13s in the group chat on the zoom tasting um, <laughs> ruthless um, so so the dos limones site um had been citrus grove until like 74 um and you talk to to people who are around here in the in the early 70s 74 the winter of 74 was extremely cold and there was like a legitimate hard freeze um you know n nothing like our friends in chicago or or you know the upper midwest but cold for us and um so what happened is it killed all of the uh it killed all of the the fruit trees especially the citrus trees and so they planted a vineyard and then subsequently hired phil and his crew in 1979 to come through and and farm it and in the middle of the vineyard uh were these two scraggly you know survivors uh from the citrus grove these two lemon trees and as the crew would go through and, and work the vines, they would tend to these lemon trees and started calling the, the ranch Dos Limones. Um, so it's, it's, it's stuck, you know, it's, it's gone through a few owners since 1979 and those lemon trees are long gone, although there is some citrus up there. Uh, the, name, the name has persisted. When I heard today from Jasmine that, that your mom is sending lemons around the country, she is part of my mom, like sending California sunshine to uh, to her friends who are, you know, in colder climates is uh, saying her lemon tree is just like going nuts at their house. But, you know, that's at 16, 600. Uh, and and so there's definitely a, a surplus of lemons. So she's been packing boxes full of lemons and then taking them down to Jasmine. So in the middle of sending wine and, and all over the country, Jasmine has also been tasked with sending my mother's lemons to her friends in you know philadelphia <laughs> and, and all over the place <laughs> what a cool gift to get though yeah you know it's uh the thing about sonoma is lots of stuff grows here it's a great place to grow citrus um you know we could still have 
acres and acres of citrus and, and fruit trees and nut trees, but, um, you know, grapes economically make a lot of, uh, lots of stuff grows here. Yes, Kevin, lots and, of stuff grows here. Uh, but economically there's only too. a few crops that, that, uh, are worthwhile. And one of them is grapes. <laughs> Can you ship, um, lemons to Pennsylvania legally? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if, uh, we should let that out into the public. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> don't don't tell the USDA. I guess maybe I'm not really sure. Sam, <laughs> uh, tell me about the variety from year to year. Um, in the Rhone Valley, which you know, I'm a big French guy. Yes. You know, obviously we've had big differentiation there with 2016 being ultra ultra phenomenal. Um, right. So much better than anything else that's been produced in in, in the Rhone Valley. Is the differentiation in California as extreme as it is in France? Uh, you definitely get good years and, and bad years here. I think that we probably um, do a little bit, you know, it's a little bit more of a temperate climate. So we're going to do, um, you know, we're going to not have such as such wild extremes, um, you know, and then you kind of looking at 16 here, Jeffrey, um, is sort of peak of our drought uh, and really one of, one of, also one of the great vintages in, in California. Um, well, so it, it is, it's definitely, this is a great year in California for sure. Um, better than like 15, which is also drought year. Uh, for, for I know what your palate, um, you know, if you were looking for more French expressions of California wines, especially in, in these varieties, um, you know, 2011, if you can find them, um, would be a, a great vintage for that. Um, you know, the way that that 20 is is shaping up so far with, uh, you know, it was an early spring, but it's been until like really a few days ago, it's been a relatively cool spring. If that kind of holds, if we have a cooler year, um, we might be in for another, you know, another cool climate expression of, of some of these California varieties. So you're saying the extremes are not as great as in France? Is yeah, I would you know in, in France when you have, um, you know when you have a really cool wet year, it's going to be much cooler and wetter than it would be here. Um, you're not going to get the you know, and this is all sort of climate change um, dependent, of course. Um, you know, and, and then you get the years where you have those extreme weather events in France, which you know knock on the side of my Subaru here. Um, we don't, we don't get, um, we're not as susceptible to hail and, and, you know, sort of things like that. We don't quite have the same level of moisture in our, in our atmosphere. Um, so, you know, I think in general, it's a little bit, a little bit more moderated here. Um, but of course, as I say that, I know that I'm setting ourselves up for some like weirdness to happen and like a tornado to come over the ridge right behind me or something. Um, so it's, it's. You know, I think that certainly we're less marginal as far as the ability to, to grow grapes than most of the French places, you know, most of the French appellations. But vineyards in general, grapevines love marginality. You're always looking for, you know, sort of pushing that, that boundary because you're always trying to restrict the vigor, increase um, you know, intensity and, and thicken the skins, things like that. So, you know, extreme weather isn't always a bad thing when it comes to the actual winemaking part of it um, you know but again california sonoma they're they're great places to farm 
you know, we have great, we have great weather, we have great soil, we get enough rain, we have good, you know, groundwater. So, um, you know, it's definitely uh, slightly less risky uh, uh, than, you know, being in certainly like the Northern Rhone where you're, you're, you know, at the whim of a lot of cold and rainy weather, tough place to grow grapes. Exactly. Exactly. And let me ask you one stupid question before, um, since I know nothing about California wines, Sonoma versus Napa. I mean, what would be, do they grow Syrah and Napa? I mean, what's, what's the difference there? Yeah, there's definitely Syrah and Napa. The thing about Sonoma. Really fucking um, hot Napa. Yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> we have, we're, we're closer to the ocean. We get a little more marine influence and we have a much greater diversity of um of soil and microclimate aspect uh so you end up with wines with a little you know again this is generalizations but you ended up with wines with a little bit more um uh, always i'm always getting busted out here chris the uh the the uh ranch manager is rolling up on rolling up on me in a side by side um napa you know you get more interesting versions of Rhone varieties, certainly Syrah, than uh, you would in in uh, uh, in Sonoma than you would in Napa. Hold on, let me say hi to Chris. Hey, how's it going? So, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chris. You know, anytime you go out to Rossi Ranch, Chris has usually got his dogs with him, and he's tooling around in his. Um, Roger, I think Roger, you were out there with us um, last year, and and he always sneaks up on you. It was you. great. Yeah, he's he's always keeping an eye on those grapes. So if, he's if you're a, out there for more than ten minutes, he's he's on top of you. Yeah, I mean, he's, even he, I've never been out there that he doesn't roll up. I, it's it's almost spooky. No, he's uh he's a retired correctional officer, so he's got you know he's got eyes all over the place, and <laughs> uh, you know nothing like getting busted by Chris. Uh, Bixby knows he was there with the, the one of the early times I got busted by by Chris. It's my it's my background again, Sam. There you go. <laughs> that was right before he probably came down and goes, "What the hell are you guys doing out there?" <laughs> hey, Cam. Uh, well, and he's. I don't know, Sam. Are we allowed to talk about what he's growing out there? Yes, and that's not what you think, Kevin Burns. Um, he actually one of the dogs that he had one of the dogs with him. So there is a female um, dog, by the way. Yes, they're better at this. Right. Um, there is there is a grove of oak trees and uh, hazelnut trees, filbert trees that have been inoculated. The roots have been inoculated with spores for black truffle, yeah. and there's this sort of proprietary technology to maintain the exact perfect soil moisture and conditions um, to, to farm truffle. And um, they have been successful out here. They, you know, they find truffle in this grove. The, the challenge that we have is um, the gophers apparently love truffle as much as we do. Um, so you, you find one and, you, you know, the dog's key and then you dig the hole and what you find is like, two-thirds of a truffle has been eaten by the gophers and then they just leave a little bit left for us um so it's it's a challenge you know it's an experiment um but so far it's been you know with a, a fair degree of success people have eaten rossi ranch truffle 
uh, and uh, one day, if there's enough of them, I'd love to, you know, have a party here. And you know, the the wines of the Rossi Ranch, especially the Grenache and the Mavedra, uh, lend themselves to pairing with a, a truffle infused kind of meal. So um, yeah, it could be that could be really fun. Hey, and Sam, I don't know if you noticed, but Isabel is sitting down next to Jasmine. We yes. got Is- Isabel oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Isabel, Isabel, can we unmute Isabel? There she is. What's up, Isabel? What have you been doing lately? Uh, suckering and bottling. (laughs) Okay. Tis the season. Things have started to grow. And, uh, yeah, a week ago we had nothing to do, and now we're late on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Isabel, how's everything going in France for your family? I mean, they're still stuck at home, um, but they're starting the deconfinement on May 12th. And, uh, so everybody's looking forward to getting back to work and kids are, I don't know if they're looking forward to being back to school, but I know their parents are. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. And Isabel, what all of these people want to know is when is that Audutech Grenache going to be ready? Um, so it's going to be bottled in July, and I think after just a couple of months after bottling, they should be perfect to drink. Yeah, um, the goal is release in the fall, right? Yes, I think that is the, they'll be ready by Thanksgiving for sure. Cool. All right, well, you guys, you guys want to start drinking some cab? We. Oui. Let's go. It's cab o'clock. So, you know, I'm going to, I have to thank my mom. And if you guys see that, Haroldine Hansen, that's, that's, that's my mom. And she comes up with the description of contango. Um, also sometimes called forwardation is a situation where the futures price of, of a commodity is higher than the spot price of the contract today. Now, do you understand why we didn't name it contango? I mean, Good can idea. you imagine explain that of course kevin burns has got it kevin would have made money on it and probably bought my company but you know bart bart contango is a very very daily used term on wall street okay there you go that's what's going on right now in the oil market well so jeffrey my, my, my wife is a municipal bond trader so um, that's where the inspiration came from it so cool. uh, contango is a very, very common term there you go. All right, Bart, let's hit up the cab. All right. Glug, 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 glug. Um, Cabernet, Cabernet, Cabernet. Yeah, you know, I, to be quite honest, I don't drink that much Cabernet. Sam, I mean, you're the same way, right? Yeah, you know, um, First well, of all, is- the ones that I really <laughs> want to drink, I usually can't afford. Right. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's not that it's not my favorite, um, but they're, the ones that are really interesting to, to my palate are, are hard to find. They're, right. they're, you know, it's become, uh, speaking of commodities, uh, it's become such a, a commodity type of, um, uh, deal that you know it, it has to have 
the certain sort of flavor characteristics and, and made in a certain way that, um, you know, to sell in a certain marketplace that uh, a lot of them get kind of boring to be, yeah. to be perfectly honest. Yeah. You know, loses, loses vineyard characteristics. Right. And, and I think to some extent, I think this wine was made with trying to just show some sort of characteristic from the vineyard. Um, so this uh, vineyard is, I, I believe we decided it's one of the most southern and southernmost Moon Mountain district um, vineyards um, for uh, uh, most southern Moon Mountain vineyards. And then also probably at the lower end of um, uh, elevation. It's about 800 feet. Um, what is the cutoff, Bart? Is it 600 feet for... For Moon Mountain, you got to be up above 600 or something. I think Sam's saying 400. 400. Okay. 400 feet. And so this is down the south end. This is actually um, right behind Bartholomew Park and where Buena Vista is. Um, so uh, you know that was all one estate at some time uh, many years ago. Frank Bartholomew bought um, Bartholomew Park and. The, all the hill behind it. Um, this vineyard is, um, is, is part of that original property. Um, uh, uh, originally going to Gunlock Bunchu, um, uh, I think uh, when it was first planted, um, and then also um, when Gunlock Bunchu was managing uh, Barthelmo Park, they did a number of bottlings. Uh, Tin Barn Winery did a Merlot off the property. Um, I received this, this is another vineyard where I got it for one year. Um, we got it in 2015. Um, there was uh, planted, there's Merlot up there and Cabernet. And I was really only interested in the Cabernet. Uh, and again, another one of those great things, it's like there's, you know, there's 10 tons of Merlot and three tons of Cab. And uh, uh, they wanted to really sell it all to one winery. and. I just wasn't willing to buy that much Merlot at the time. Um, but it's a beautiful vineyard. It's south, southeast facing, um, sits on the side of a canyon that goes down to Arroyo Creek. Um, and you're really looking straight out at uh, uh, Southern Carneros, Sonoma Carneros, and straight at San Francisco. Um, so it gets a lot of influence, a lot of coastal influence. I would say this is, would be called a cool climate Cabernet for Sonoma Valley. Um, uh, right. kind, of, kind of traditionally farmed in California sprawl, not a, not a real uh, modern um, trellising. Um, and, and so really, I think this is a wine that uh, reminds me more of the wines that I made when I worked at Kenwood in the 80s. Um, you know, traditionally farmed, not a lot of um, vertical shoot positioning, um, uh, definitely not on the overripe. Um, side of the uh, ripeness and, and um, richness of the wine um, has good acid. Um, it's 100% Cabernet. Um, was um, picked um, at only about 25.5% bricks originally, um, which is not certainly not very ripe uh, uh, for Cabernet in this day and age. Um, well, and that has to do with the fact that it, sort of where it's growing. I think when we had Katie Bunchu on the show, she was talking about the cabs that are growing in this area that have a lot of maritime influence to them. So they're getting, yeah. Yeah, it really does. And, and the fact that, you know, by the time where, the way the vineyard is situated, kind of like Dos Limones, by the time that burning hot 
you know, um, temperature, there's, there's a hillside up above it behind where the vineyard ends, the hill goes up above it. So it becomes in the shadow of the afternoon. Um, so it doesn't get that, that burning afternoon sun, although it does get a good amount of the morning sun. And it is at 800 feet, it's high enough that it's usually above the fog, unless it's one of those situations where the whole valley is, is socked in. Um, and Mark was asking if this is um, close to where the Hill of Taro lines were coming from, but no, that's, that's up um, further north and east. Yeah. And, 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 and almost 2,000 feet higher. Um, right. And definitely um, farther north and farther east. I mean, essentially, if, if people don't know where Buena Vista or, or Bart Park is, it, think about where Gunlock Bunchu is up on the hill above Gunlock Bunchu. So, you know, fairly close to the Napa, the Napa border. Um, but, right. but the southern Napa border as opposed to the eastern Napa border. Right. And, and have you made a cab since this cab? I actually have not. Um, you know, I've been investing all my, all my grapes into, you know, the Chenin Blanc and, and Zinfandel, which, you know, are very important parts of my program. And then, you know, trying to continue um, finding the right vineyards to make some Rhone varieties. So we have not made anything since 15. Um, I think this year I'm going to need to uh, consider making, trying to, you know, get into a regular cab production. Um, try to find some grapes that I can make on a year and year and year year in and year out basis. Um, but the the priorities have always kind of been more the Rhone varieties of Zin Shannon for me. So, um, and it's probably just because of how much you know what we drink. Um, well, yeah, and Cab is one of those things like uh, you know that Psalms like to sell because typically it's a higher price point, especially if you're making a percentage of the wine sales. But to to be honest. You know, all those psalms that are working over at those restaurants in Napa, when people are asking for a wine pairing um, with what they're having, very rarely is Cabernet a, a great pairing um, for food unless you got a really, you know, you got a big piece of red meat in front of you. Um, but, it, you know, usually you're getting a lot of fruit and a lot of oak. What, what was your oak treatment on the cab? So this, this wine was only 20% new oak. And, and, and one, quite frankly, I, I can't afford to buy 100% new oak. It's just, and, and it's stylistically, it's just not what I'm interested in. I mean, Chateau 2 by 4 is just not it. And I understand <laughs> wineries that, that can do that 100%. You like that, Sam? Um, that 100% brand new oak. But, but you have to have a massive wine to stand up to that. Because or else, after time, what you end up with is just that, Chateau 2 by 4 um, so you have to have a wine, and, and this is not a wine that would have stood up to much more cab than this. I mean, much more oak than this. Um, this wine has some structure to it. Um, it has tannin. Um, uh, the tannin is a little unrefined, but I find over time in the bottle, it's really started to kind of uh, integrate better. Um, and, and I said earlier to someone, I said, this is, to me, is this is kind of old school Cabernet, and they were referencing, yes, it reminded them of Bordeaux. And, and I don't drink enough Bordeaux to really know if I would say Bordeaux. To me, as I said earlier, it reminds me kind of the, of the Cabernets that we were making in the late 80s um, here in Sonoma County. It's 100% Cabernet. And then quite honestly, I, I was totally seduced by this vineyard when I went up and looked at it because 
One, where it was located, um, uh, it, it was so picturesque and it, and it, was, it was farmed very well, um, but just the location. And then with the name, the Desnudos, um, and you know, doing the, the research on it, I, I, I'm a sucker for a good story, what can I say? Um, you know, this, this was in the 1940s, this was the site of a nudist colony called Sun Oma, the Sun Oma Club. Um, and at the time, um, it had cabins, which are unfortunately after the 2017 fires, they, they were all burned. Um, but it had these cabins that you could rent that were illegal vacation rentals. It had a saloon, a general store, and a swimming pool. Um, and, and, and the reason why it was known, in fact, was is that because people were driving there to the nudist colony and they were using their wartime gas um, uh, credits to, to, you know, not properly, uh, uh, not the proper, uh, for not the proper reasons. Um, they, they weren't putting it into the war effort, right? Right. They were coming up to see some naked bodies. Yeah, yeah, and hang out. Get some Sonoma. Get some Sonoma. <laughs> so, um, Wait, so how old is this vineyard? When was it actually planted? Oh, I don't think there were any vines during that time. I think it was strictly a nudist colony at the time. Um, there was better money in, in resorts, whether they were clothing or optional or not, than grapevines in 1940. Yeah, I mean, remember, yeah, you know, the all Boys Hot Springs, all Caliente, you know, those were all vacation homes and uh, for people coming up from the city, coming up from San Francisco. But this is kind of in that area, though, where you've got Buena Vista and Bartholomew that had vines going back to like 1850s Correct. or something. So. Correct, yeah. But I think this was all just pasture, or not pasture land, just, just the hillside. I mean, this was definitely, this was probably all oak, forest at some point and they went and cleared it and planted the vineyard um this okay. was not like an open pasture or anything like that okay uh, hey, ba hey bart when you talk about structure and tenants this yeah. one clearly has structures and tenants yeah it has a kind of polyac cabernet taste to it this is my favorite of the four oh, sam you. i hope that doesn't make you feel badly i don't know if sorry no I'm because you said that I'm gonna charge, I'm gonna charge Charlie for your wine instead of just giving it to you. But it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean this has a really, it has structure. It has tannins. Um, I think the tannins are great. Um, you you made a comment. You thought they were harsh. I think they're absolutely fine. Yeah, uh, thank you. You know, it has a very French polyac taste to it. Yeah, and again, this is another wine that I think if you. Um, whatever's left in the bottle tonight, if you don't finish it, tomorrow you'll, you'll taste it and you'll see how everything, what I kind of perceive as being harsh tannins, becomes very integrated um, overnight. With, with most Polyac wines I drink, I tend to agree with you. I mean, they, you know, the next day they're even better. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and I think really what that, to me, what that means is that this wine is going to age out really nicely. I agree with that. I agree with that tremendously. And it's it is a, a really nice finish. Thank you. Yeah, it's a little insight into the future of the wine. Cool. And when did you when did you release this wine, Bart? Uh, this wine was a solid two years in barrels, and so that would have been uh, 15, 16, 17. I think this was uh, mid or early 2018. This was released. Okay. And how do you think it's changed since then? Um, I think that 
what, and again, I, I speak about, you know, the, the tannins and the tannins are what I mean is going from more rough grain to more fine grain. I think that it's over time, the grains are becoming more fine grain. Um, I think the fruit profile has stayed very much the same. Um, uh, just kind of becoming more uh, focused towards um, uh, more lighter red berry fruit. I think most Americans are not into tannins, but you know, these are, these are, I think these tannins are going to age beautifully. Yeah. And again, I think if you go back to like my early influences with the Cabernets that I was exposed to were, you know, um, Kenwood Cabernets. So those were all Sonoma Valley cabs, um, Jack London Cabernet up on Sonoma mountain, um, you know, uh, a cooler growing area, you know, on the, on the West side of the Valley. Um, the Kenwood um, Artist Series wines, those were all, you know, substantial wines. Right. You know, let's face it, you know, Cabernet has changed a lot in the last um, 35 years of my wine career. Um, gone kind of from what this wine is to um, things that I think at times can be questioned is, do, or they, do they taste like wine or they taste like fruit juice, you know? Most, most American Cabernets are garbage. Yeah. I mean, when you get to wines that are you know, pH is in, in the late, um, in the high threes and, and not a lot of acid, so. Yeah, the acidity in this is great and the tannins are phenomenal. Jeffrey, you and me, we're on the same page. Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> now, I will say, Bart, and I don't know if we, we did the tasting with this uh, a few weeks ago and I didn't really pick up on the just like sort of classic, and I think to, to Jeffrey's point, um, like a, a black currant, red currant on the on the nose, especially that um, you get more in in Pouillac, especially, but more of a Bordeaux uh, expression. You don't get in like the graphite necessarily as much. Um, well, that's I all. Got more the, last time. That's all uh, the American oak they use in Bordeaux. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's got this. Yeah, the 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 classic red currant, black currant um flavors and aromas that um they're hard to find in california for sure yeah you know um, what for for some reason i always sound like i'm apologizing for this wine and and i don't know why that is um i i, I actually i love the wine but i i feel sometimes that i have to explain it to people because i don't think it's like a lot of current california cabernets or sonoma napa cabernets it's for french wine guys yeah <laughs> yeah bart i think you need to double the price Especially for Jeffrey. <laughs> Contango, isn't that what we're talking about? There you go. Sam, I did, Sam in all fairness, I did love your white. I did love your white. All right, we'll put a box together, half, half homage blanc, half, uh, half Desnudo's Cabernet for you. Okay, great. <laughs> all right, Hank, uh, Leslie, since you want to get on chat, can, I un can we unmute you for, for a second and get a... Um, Get a Metallica story out of you. <laughs> I, I, I want to hear about the last show you went to. Oh, I was at the SM two shows. Yeah, and in first, San Francisco on the first, second row. And how was that? Uh, amazing, as always. <laughs> I know. Because I think I remember. Sick. I think I remember the first night you were you were up in the nosebleeds where you were like almost the like the second row from the top and um, yes. you were afraid of falling on the person in front of you. Yes. And didn't someone puke on, on no, someone? No, she fell on me. Oh, she? Um, Jack totally fell on me. Okay. And I don't know, 
you've been inside the arena there, it's pretty steep. I, don't, I thought I was going to die, but anyway. No, she totally fell on me. She was quite drunk. But yeah, yeah. no, the second night I was there, uh, it was on the second row. Much uh, yeah. Better. Yeah, fell on yeah, night two, you had a little different experience. Yes. <laughs> I'm supposed to be there right now watching where, them. Where were they supposed to be playing right now? Uh, they were supposed to be doing the Epicenter Festival. They're doing, they were supposed to be doing all the summer festivals, two nights, two different sets, all summer long. And currently, the only one that's still on the books is in Sacramento in October, but I doubt that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, it would but be yeah, nice no. It would be nice, but I doubt it's going to happen. But yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, uh, it was a great show. So I'm a, a slight metalhead, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Love your background too, Leslie. It's a pretty metal pretty metal background. <laughs> we, we let Pablo in. Yeah. We did. But anyway, yeah. So it was fun. All right. Anyone else got questions about any of those wines? Well, let's just open it up. Yeah, just let's turn off the turn on those mics. Uh yeah, do I have to do that? I don't think so, right? I think so, yeah. This was just so terrific in terms of, uh, you know, the differentiation and the quality and, and what we saw and what we got to taste. I really, really just had a grand time. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. That's a really important comment. It really yeah. is. I'm excited. Thanks. And Sam, if people want to get some, some shit that's really rare from 16600, um, do you still have any Oakville Grenache or any Muchas Piedras? Don't ask uh, Sam, ask Jasmine. Ask Jasmine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, Jasmine will say yes, and I'll say maybe. Uh, there's Again, ask Jasmine. There's, there's 2017 Oakville Grenache. There, there is a tiny bit of 16 Muchas Piedras. We didn't make Muchas Piedras in 17, and I, we just bottled last week uh 2018 muchas piedras which is probably better than the 16 um so it's 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 coming it's not already yet but it's coming um yeah, but there's a, there's always something and what about the 18 shard you guys have been texting me for the past two weeks about this 18 chardonnay <laughs> which, which I always think it's funny. I don't think of myself as like a Chardonnay aficionado. I think of Hawk Waka Waka as more the Chardonnay expert, but um, maybe maybe it's true. Maybe as I'm getting older, I'm appreciating a little bit of oak influence in my whites. I don't know. But what, well, you know, the 18. Um, so we made it, we made like 45 cases of it or so in 18, and it's it's only 25% new oak, um, and the rest of it is is neutral. Um, and because, you know, this is going back to the conversation that, or the question that Jeffrey asked at the very beginning, that Chardonnay is, is all volcanic soil. So it holds the pH low, um, in a way that you wouldn't get necessarily like on the valley floor. So, you, you know, you need a little bit of new oak to sort of soften some of that. Um, but it's, but it's certainly not a, a buttery classic Chardonnay. It's, uh, it's got great acid. Um, a lot of citrus and mineral, um, you know, uh, I've, other people, people have said, uh, Chablis like I'm, you know, maybe not presumptive enough to call my own wine Chablis like, but if other people want to say that, I'll definitely agree with them. <laughs> well, so, 
you, you know, to go along with the ML thing, you know, remember David Ramey taught us is that, you know, not all, all ML has to be butter. Right? ML right. can just be richness. And, and that is not as much as what you use to put it through ML, but how you deal with the wine when it's in it. Um, Interesting. You know, when it's aging, so um, th there's certainly a winemaking technique that goes along with that. Also, that I'm sure your very skilled winemaking team um, are aware of. Or we just got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I have a question. This is Todd. Hey, Bart. Ahead, Todd. Hey, Bart. This is um. I've often been interested in you know you mentioned ML, and I always thought that was um, distinctive for white wines. I, I'm getting the sense that maybe it's for reds also. Yeah, so, so Todd, all, all red wines go through ML, um, or at least they're supposed to. If they, if they haven't and they get in the bottle, it usually becomes a problem because they will eventually go through ML. White wines have to kind of help them along, but a, but a red wine will go through ML on its own. It's something it wants to do naturally. So it really is kind of the determining factor of when you – when you add or when the, you can make the wine table. Um, but what it does, it also, you know, the, the acid shifts from a higher number to a lower number. And, and once ML is completed in a red wine, it, it, the wine becomes less acidic and it's just richer. Again, going from that malic acid of um, pippin apple lactic acid of creaminess. Very good. And one last question. What, what do you, uh, you described something about cold soak. What does that mean? So cold soaking is when the grapes come in, instead of just starting out the fermentation after they've been um, distemmed, um, what you do is you chill the tank down to between 40 and 50 degrees. Typically it's between, done between three and five days because a fermentation can't start at that low temperature. And then once you want the fermentation to start, whether you're inoculating it with a yeast or if you're doing it naturally, you have to let the um, grapes warm up um, to an ambient temperature. So what you're essentially doing is you're extracting color and flavor without the um, presence of any alcohol. So, um, you know, alcohol is a bit of a stripping agent. Um, so you're trying to avoid getting any of the harsh tannins or what we call seed tannins out of the seeds in the wine. Perfect. Thank you very much. And cheers. This is great. Yeah. And, and just you guys, so you know, Todd, um, there's an old friend of mine. He, uh, he was an intern at Kenwood for a few years and uh, used to help us out uh, uh, back in the, the late 80s um, harvesting grapes. And uh, he was a great barrel washer. Todd could wash barrels like nobody. And I still <laughs> wash a lot of dishes and things today. Thank you. <laughs> Life skills. Right. Life skills. And Bart, when you're, sorry, go ahead. No, so Bart, if I have a 2012 Cabernet from yes. you, where, when should you drink it? Well, so, you know, that, 20, that 2012 is from a completely different vineyard. Right. That's from uh, the Lassiter's Vineyard up in Glen Ellen. Um, that is also 100% Cabernet. Um, I have to open a bottle of that myself. I think our friend um, Rob Wildman here, uh, who's on the, on this he's probably opened a bottle more recently than i have what do you think rob are you are you live there we go there we go it's fantastic fantastic we we uh thank you for sending uh the large bottle we uh we can polish that off pretty quickly 
<laughs> you're supposed to, if you get a large ball, you're supposed to sit on it for a while. You're not well, you know, know. Drink, it. drink it. Bart, over the years. It was good. It was pre-corona, right? So we were good. Bart, over the years, that's been my favorite year that you have done. I've got a couple magnums left. Yeah, yeah, no, those um, that 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 uh, vineyard produces some really nice wines, some really nice wines. I don't think I'll be getting any of those grapes anymore, though. Hey, Bart, uh, Bart, one of my favorite wines, you know, besides the Chenin Blanc, obviously, is the 16 that I absolutely love. Um, but that 09 Syrah, uh, yeah. do you still do you still have any of that available? That's good um, stuff. Maybe, maybe <laughs> not much. How about that? Okay, there's there's still a few. There's still like seven or eight cases around. Yeah, really, that much? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Send me a so, message. Anybody wants to don't let Jasmine know. She'll sell it all. <laughs> yeah, that's also from <laughs> that's also from uh, the same vineyard as the cab. That's um, that's, that, uh, that's, another, that's another great example of a cool warm spot. Like you know, down in the middle of Glen Ellen, down in the valley floor, but because of the soils that it grows on, you know, right next to Sonoma or Calabasas Creek, and uh, within being in the shadow of Sonoma Mountain, it, it makes pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. That's a juicy wine? Yeah, yep, juicy creek. Okay, okay, yep. cool. Bart, I just had the I had the 09 Syrah about a, two weeks ago. It was beautiful. Yeah. I am glad I have another bottle. Good, Robert. <laughs> yeah, it's nice when you, you know, in all honesty, to when you have someone that ages the wine for you, if you can pick up an older vintage like that, like Bart's saying, he's got about seven cases, because I, I can't keep wine around like that. It gets to my house and it just disappears. But if you can buy a bottle, Bart, what would you sell that for if someone wanted a bottle of the 09 Syrah? Uh, I think we, we're selling it for $40 a bottle. Wait, phrase that, that, that price. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. Sam's, <laughs> Sam's not going to let me do this anymore because my pr wine prices are too low. Contango, baby, contango. <laughs> That's all right. You know, now that all of our grapes are fill farmed, unfortunately, the prices are going up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But you know, but you know what? The quality is going through the roof too. Part E, Jasmine, do some consulting with you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Brian, do you remember this bottle? Yes, that oh, is one of the, word. that's, that's Look one of the, that. I know, isn't that one of the funniest labels? Is yeah. that old Tony? That's an 06. No, no. That's okay. the 06 Syrah. All right. Yeah, from Brian, 16, uh, 600. Brian pulled that up for me. Brian pulled that up for me. Yeah, before Stanley did, I don't know, well, I don't know, Sam, did Stanley do that label? No. No, that was, that was, uh like a local label designer. Um, and that was my concept that I would say was, you know, um, executed well, but it was a bad idea. I'll, 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 I'll fall on the sword on that one. It's, but the uh, wine is good. Yeah, the wine is great. Uh, you know, that's the beginning of us realizing that we were onto something with just, you know, really simply made, um, fill-grown, vineyard designates so that was you know dos limones and and we did uh, the, the estate zinfandel in 2006 as well 
Um, and, you know, and then starting in 2008 is when we did the Stanley Mouse label, which is our current label. Hey, Sam, is it legal to sell stuff without a label? Who's asking? Uh, <laughs> the, the TTB and the ABC have kind of, there's no rules anymore. So anything that doesn't have a label was only sold in the last seven weeks. <laughs> Mystery wine. Mystery wine, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes wine leaves without a label, and you just got to believe that it is what we say it is. I, I believe whatever you say. <laughs> That that happens sometimes when you're not doing the bottling and the labeling at the same time. You end up with, you know, a bunch of what they call shiners. So it's just a bunch of bottles with no label on them. And then you figure you'll get around to bottling event to labeling eventually. But um, you know, sometimes a few slip through the cracks. I, I love shiners because it makes you feel like you're getting something you're not supposed to have. I love it. I just keep sending them. Yeah. <laughs> we'll keep making them. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times this week have reported that um, wine and liquor sales were up 22% um, since the lockdowns have started. Um, from an investment standpoint, are you finding people are buying higher quality wines, lower quality wines, the same quality wines? What are you finding from a perspective of the consumer right now? You know, and I think that it's, it's a little bit of all of that, Jeffrey. Um, you know, we, we talked to some folks at uh, Zachy's. I'm a buddy of mine at Zachy's yesterday for a, a podcast that will come out in a couple of weeks. And there's a whole bunch of, of blue chip wines that usually would be going into the fine dining, you know, high-end restaurant world that all of a sudden are showing up in, in the retail market and, you know, the, the direct-to-consumer sales from places like Zachy's. But That's I think it. in general, um, in general, people are, you know, they're drinking more and they're drinking more of the moderate to lower priced products. Um, just because one of the things that happened that has happened is this, you know, we're, we're calling it channel shift This very massive channel shift from wines being purchased at restaurants and high end bottle shops to grocery stores and liquor stores, places that are still open. And for the most part, those places are offering, um, you know, lower priced, lower priced wines. That's interesting. So, uh, because I'm curious as to from Did you send them audience, Zoom? So you're yeah. finding your sales are up, but not necessarily at the high end. You know, for us, you know, our winery in in general, um, you know, our, our prices are fairly moderate. You know, from the the mid 30s to you know 100 dollars on the cabs. Um, we definitely have have sold a lot of wine in the last few weeks um, across that spectrum. Um, but, uh, you know, people are definitely excited when we have offerings that are at, you know, the lower end of that, of that price spectrum. Interesting. Okay. Hey, Thank Sam, you. you, you're Sam, you are, um, you're, um, very humble. I would say I would give the quality to the, uh, the winemaker and say that you guys are, are making a great quality of wine at you know, a less price or a lower price. Well, uh, thank you, Todd. One of the, you know, one of the advantages that we have at 16600 is, um, you know, that a lot of small wineries don't get is we have this big company behind us, the you know, Enterprise Vineyards that has a labor force and a fleet of trucks and things that we get to, to operate at, a, you know, some economies of scale that allow us, and, you know, and, and not to mention access to the fruit, 
um, that allow us to put out, you know, what we think are high quality products at, at fairly reasonable prices. Uh, probably means I should charge more though, too. <laughs> it's all about the fruit, you guys. It's all about the fruit, you know? That classic line, you, you, you can't make great wine from mediocre fruit. And, uh, and, and, there, and there's a lot of fruit available out there, especially now. Um, but if you can get really thoughtfully farmed fruit from really good quality uh, places, that's what it starts with. Because if the fruit's good, you don't have to manipulate it much. And if you don't have to manipulate it, you don't have to work on it too much, it's going to be a better product in the end. You know, it's, it's the same concept of, um, you know, manufactured foods or, you know, um, just, just over-processing. So, and, and, yeah. and, and wine is at the top of that chain of, you know, leave it alone, it will be better. Yeah, so well, that's, that's why I, I love your wines and, and Sam's wines, you guys, because you're not winemakers, you're not scientists, you're not making wines that you need to do a lot of manipulation to. The idea is to get really good fruit, put it in stainless concrete or barrel, age it for a little while, put it in a bottle and sell it to the consumer. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and it really, I mean, it, you know, there are very well-educated winemakers out there that know exactly what's going on scientifically. And, and, and I'm quite frankly, I mean, I know the basics. I know what I need to know to make a, a, a consistent, safe wine. That's something that, you know, is not, um, uh, but the technical part is sometimes lost on me um, because I think you can tell more from just being aware of what's going on in the winery. Um, you need the basics. You need to know the PA, the pH, where your alcohol is. Um, and, and then you let the wine tell you what, what, what it needs to have done to it. Yeah. Hey, and Jeffrey, to your point, we have a, a good friend of the podcast that works for a large distribution company. Um, they're the ones stocking the shelves at places like Safeway or Kroger's or Rayleigh's or wh wherever it is that you guys live. And um, we were told that the number one selling wine currently is Bovel Chardonnay, which probably comes in around 10 to $12 a bottle, something like that. So people are drinking more wine and, and, you know, because of that, they're, they're wanting to pay less for it. And, and obviously it, it depends on your demographic, you know, there's people that have the money that can spend more, you know, but to, but to drink wine on a daily basis, you know, when you're talking about getting a $7,500 bottle of wine, that's kind, that's kind of an expensive habit. So. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that comment. That, um, the American public is certainly consuming a lot more liquor and, and wine than pre-corona. What are you, what are you drinking more of right now, Jeffrey? Uh, I'm being more experimental. I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get out of my, you know, French snobism. I'm trying to tie a, try a few different things right now. Yeah, you tried okay. four California wines tonight. Right. And a few Italian wines I've been trying. Right on. But there's no question that I, I live in Manhattan. There's no question that everybody's drinking a lot more than they were pre-corona. And, and, you know, I think, Jeffrey, to your point, that's, that's an opportunity right now for people that if you don't want to spend as much money on wine, but you want to continue drinking on a daily basis, 
you, you can go to um, shops like Bottle Barn online and get, you can get some stuff from Portugal or South Africa, um, New Zealand, like kind of, you know, branch out a little bit, get some stuff that you've never had before that you can get for, you know, under 20 bucks. Sam, who was um, your buddy that we had on um, that we were talking to yesterday from that wine shop in LA? He's got a killer selection of wines under 20 bucks. Yeah, that was a uh, wine stop in downtown LA. I don't know if much of that is available online, but um, what he's doing is basically direct importing. Um, you know, he has a relationship with a with an importer that he'd worked with for a long time. He's going to Spain and to Portugal and to Italy and yeah. finding those things, those little, you know, small production, really high quality, but value oriented kind of things and, and bringing them in. And so it's, you know, there's little hole in the wall shop in you know, the arts district in LA that you can find um, great deals on stuff that you, know, you just can't find period anywhere else. It on something else. And he's, yeah. and he's killing it in it. He's killing it with it. Killing it with it. It's yeah, interesting so. that, Governor, that Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, none of whom I particularly care for, um, decided that liquor stores were, quote unquote, essential services. So um, I don't know. Is this the same in California? It is the same in California, and thank God. Yeah. <laughs> if you can get to go cocktails, like, I'm going to stop. Yes, I've read about that now. They have these to go cocktails. I'm going to stop oh. at the Smith Hotel and get dinner tonight on the way home, and I might get a Glarify for, you know, after dinner. Oh, North, man, that Car sounds really North good. Carolina is considering going to, to go talk cocktails. Oh, sure. me. Well, the most important thing that happened in California is on the list of essential services, not only liquor stores, but the dispensaries. The, you know, <laughs> from, from illegal to essential in you know less than a decade that's a that's the story of success for <laughs> cannabis in california so jeffrey where are <laughs> you on the uh, huh? where are you in new york city yeah. uh, lincoln, lincoln center okay we were at 86th and uh Central park west oh cool yeah. very nice area beautiful so i, I have a children on the upper east side however one of whom is on this chat with um um with charlie Hey, east side, west side, it's all okay with me. Hey, I I like the where are you? Charlie's on mute. He's not going to come on mute. All right, okay. <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey, think about if you were to, if, if, if people weren't able to purchase um, cannabis or alcohol right now, imagine the riots that would be in the streets. <laughs> oh, un unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, an essential service. Yes. <laughs> Leslie, you got a question? Yeah. So I have a question. So a uh, friend of the program, um, Mr. Ravenswood himself, Joel Peterson, I was able to get a couple bottles out of the library. Drink it. Don't drink it yet. What do you think? Bart, Brian, Sam? I, I, drink it, it. All, it. It all depends on what those wines were. I mean, you know what? The fact that Joel was selling them, that means he was drinking them, and he thought that they were tasting good. Um, uh, I, if you have more than one of any yeah. one image, I'd open one tonight, and that would determine. Yeah. I'd open yeah. one soon, and that would determine when I opened the next one. Yeah, I got a, a 95 cab, two 89 cabs, and a 92 and Zinfandel. Oh my God! Drink those. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, my birthday is this week, so that's why I'm asking. Should I just open everything and my open them all? Yeah, open Absolutely. them all. Have a good time. Yeah. Know your know the audience and who you're asking that question to. Leslie. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody here who would say don't open them. Good point. Good Unless, point. Unless somebody's going to say, don't open them until I get there, and then you right. can open them. <laughs> if y'all'd like to come to North Carolina, I mean, come on, whatever. It's fine. Happy birthday from Alabama, too. It's my birthday week as well. Happy birthday, guys. Fabulous. Hey, well, my birthday's on Cinco de Mayo, so I mean, hello to you. Yeah, mine's Cuatro de Mayo. I claim Cinco de Mayo, so it's all good. <laughs> on that note, uh, Cuatro de Mayo is my mother-in-law's birthday, who I think might still be on here somewhere. Uh, so shout out to, to Wendy there, too. Hi, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a big, big week for birthdays around here, I guess. Well done, Sam. Cheers. Thank you. Brownie points, Sam. Good job. I'm in for another year. <laughs> you get to go to Christmas now, Sam. Good job. Oh, it's Hanukkah, but yeah, I get to go. Oh, Hanukkah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in for another lifetime, pal. Don't worry about it. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, okay. I'll, more kosher rosé at Passover in the office. There you go. See, you started that, too. Seriously. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I, see, I see Pablo Blanco is just sitting there looking excessively happy. He's hot yeah. as fuck, John. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sam, tell me about... Um, from this French wine snob who loves Syrah, what is Petite Syrah? What is that? Say that. What's your question again, Jeffrey? What is Petite Syrah? Oh, well, Petite Syrah is French. That's what, they, that's, what, that's what they add to Napa Cab to uh, make it taste better. To, to make there it you stain go. your hands. Uh, Petite Syrah is, is a completely different varietal, no relation to Syrah. Uh, Which is they don't sell in France. There's nothing. No way in France they never heard of Petite Syrah. Um. There's another name for it. What is the other name that they call Petite Sirah in France, Brian? Uh, Durif? Durif, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, all right. So there is, there is Petite Sirah grown in France, but it's, it really is, is, you know, famous as a California variety. Yes. Um, you know, and, and famous from vineyards of the era that I'm standing in um, where they were, you know, quote-unquote mixed black vineyards. Um, where you have a bunch of different varieties, usually dominated by Zin, but Petite Syrah comes in there, brings great color, brings great structure, a lot of you know savory tannins and things like that, kind of help balance out Zinfandel and the other varieties in there that that might lack a little bit of that, depending on depending on the vintage. So you know, it's something that is is crucial in blends um, and can be more difficult uh, as as a standalone variety, but there are really interesting versions of Petite Syrah out there that, um, you know, on their own, uh, make great wines. Yeah, yeah, Bart, who, you had uh, uh, Mountain Tides in the house about an hour ago. That's right. But it's two Sam, hours ago at this point. Sam, you don't do, you don't do Petite Syrah. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, this year we will bottle um, – about 25 cases of Petite Syrah from here at the Rossi Ranch, from 110-year-old vines um, that uh, is, is pretty delicious, pretty interesting expression of Petite Syrah, um, and, uh, you know, pretty big, pretty big expressive wine, um, and something that we had 
harvested sort of as an experiment, used a little bit in some some blends, but uh, had more of it than we needed to blend with, and and uh, you know we're gonna put out some. You know, it might not be something that we do always, but you know when there's the fruit, we'll 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 play with some fruits, Rob. Well, yeah. Sam, you guys also did a little um, Super Tuscan thing, right? That's true. Uh, I was actually just talking to somebody about that. I think Roger Randall uh, on social media. Yeah, we did uh, Dos Limones, Sangiovese, and a little bit of Moon Mountain District Cabernet um, that Eric Bradley is making up at Repre right now, and it's it's uh, out of this world. Class, you know, super Tuscan in all its in all its greatness. Yeah, what's the percentage? You, do you, is it is it blended already? It's already blended. Yeah, it was co-fermented, which is really important with you know kind of helping along the Sangiovese. Um, it's it's probably about twenty percent Cabernet. Um, I think it was a ton of Cab and you know at least at least three and a half tons of uh, of Sangio. Well, someone just came into the winery knocking on the door. They were looking for the cheese shop. I think they were <laughs> in the wrong place. They were mistaken. Yeah. Well, my, my phone is about to die, and my food at the Glen Allen Star that I'm picking up to take home is about to be ready. So I'm about to sign off. But um, thank you, everybody, who, who joined us out here. And um, this has been a, a fun time. Sam, this was so much fun. Awesome. Hey, you know. Getting California wine into your house, Jeffrey, is is a win. So we, we were ahead. We were ahead from the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. We'll see be you safe, guys. guys. Take care. And there's gonna be. We'll do one more of these. We don't know exactly the wines oh, or exactly when, but stay tuned. Terrific. Be one more. Yeah, there'll be one more. Terrific. Yeah, we'll. Uh, I'll I'll put this show up on the uh, Radio Misfits uh, podcast network too, like we did with the other one. Just not a, not as a regular podcast, but just as a little bonus if anyone wants to listen. You know, I, I want to say um, just a hi to all of our old friends like uh, Bix, and of course I want to say hi to Pablo and uh, Jasmine, and also Dave Hayes, absolutely Jeffrey, a pleasure. Oh, it's so nice to see you guys. So nice to see Safa here today. And uh, get him in on uh, the next awesome shot of these. Yeah, perfect. Peace, guys. guys. Take care. You guys, Thanks, you Thanks for all your comments. I really appreciate them. So much right. fun. Thank you. Right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Have a good night. Peace.